My name is Mark Harris and I'm the Parliamentary Officer for Christians in Parliament. This evening forms part of a regular series that we hold here, which seek to examine both the personal and the public relevance of the Christian faith. And we're delighted this evening to have Dr. Timothy Keller with us on the title, What Can Christianity Contribute to British Society Today? And we're very grateful to Fiona Bruce MP to be hosting this evening as well. The programme will run as follows. Dr. Keller will speak for approximately 35 minutes. Fiona Bruce will then host questions and answers with Dr. Keller for a further 30 minutes. We'll then finish promptly at 8.15, and we'd be delighted if you stay for drinks and canapes afterwards, which will be served in the room adjoining. I'm now going to hand over to the Reverend Richard Cokin to introduce our speaker. Richard kindly arranged for Dr. Keller to come and speak here tonight, and he also leads a Bible study group for MPs every Tuesday morning here in Parliament. Richard, over to you. Yes, it's my great privilege to introduce Dr. Keller to you. He's been a friend for many years, and many of you will uh, either know of him or have read his books. Um, he was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which has grown into a church of uh, several thousand um, young professionals uh, in Manhattan. Uh, he's well known because he also uh, set up the City to City Church Planting Network, which has planted a few hundred churches now in global cities uh, around the world. Perhaps he's best known for his writing, He's written many books, uh, two of which, uh, The Reason for God, uh, was the uh, top New York Times, top 10 uh, bestseller, and then uh, also Prodigal God, and those two books have sold more than a million copies now and been translated into 15 languages. And uh, Dr. Keller is well known as a, a thinker, an incisive thinker, uh, an, an analyst, analyst of Western culture, uh, with a real concern for social justice and to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ in language that people can understand. And uh, so we're absolutely thrilled that Dr. Keller uh, is available to speak to us on this very, very important subject. And I'm going to make way now for Dr. Keller. Thank you. This is quite a question. What a question. What can Christianity contribute to British society today by an American? Uh, my books have been translated into, into British. Uh, over here you follow Jesus, our Savior, uh, and uh, we, uh, so it was, uh, it was hard, but I understand that people still can understand my books here, and that's great. As an outsider, I've got, uh, any outsider has both a, uh, a leg up and a leg down, that is to say, I've got limitations, I don't live here. Uh, outsiders also sometimes can see things. Uh, that the insiders can't see. I learn an awful lot about American culture from people from outside who live in the States for a couple of years and then come to me and say, this is what I see. And often I say, I, you're right, but I never saw that. Maybe I can do a little bit of that for you. I'd really just like to get you to think tonight. Think some new thoughts. That's actually all I'm out to do. And maybe even uh, uh, certainly call to your attention certain thinkers that I think would uh, uh, where I got the, a lot of the ideas from, uh, thinkers that I think would be profitable for you to get a, acquainted with as well. Um, also, even though I don't want to spend too much time on 
things, introductory things. The question, the question itself. Uh, some people would say it's not a legitimate question to speak to uh, British leaders about what can Christianity can contribute to British society today because this, the question doesn't uh, ask, is Christianity true? And what some people would say is, well, it would be cynical at best and sinister at the worst if uh, leaders of a country decided that Christianity was functional, that it was a wonderful uh, method of social control, and therefore let's, let's promote it. I, I don't want to in any way give you the impression that I think that Christianity is of any benefit to British society if it's not true. Uh, it's relevant, but it's relevant because it's true. If it's not true, it's not relevant at all. Nevertheless, that's not what I'm supposed to be speaking about tonight. And I actually think that there's a lot of people who don't care whether it's true because they can't imagine that it's got any assets or resources for them personally or for British society. And I'm here to show you that it does. And so possibly, even though I'm not talking about whether it's true or not, I'm talking about what it could do, the unparalleled resources. It might be when you hear some of them, you say, I hadn't thought of that. And it might, in many of your cases, uh, give you some impetus for deciding whether or not, or exploring whether or not uh, it may actually be the case. It may be true. Uh, there's also, I guess I should also say, some of you might say the question seems useless. The question, what can Christianity uh, contribute to British society? Because, you might assume, surely Christianity is dying. Surely religion is dying. Surely we're the future is a secular world. And therefore, why are we even talking about this? How, who cares whether it can contribute because it's, it's weakening and dying all the time. Um, some thoughts on that. I don't believe that's true at all. Here are some reasons why. Uh, 40 years ago, certainly almost all sociologists, almost all, uh, everyone in the academy believed that secularization inevitably follows uh, technological advance, uh, modernity, uh, science. The more scientifically advanced, the more technologically advanced the culture gets, it was reasoned, uh, the less people need God. You don't need God to explain things. You don't need God to deal with your disease. You go to a doctor and therefore the idea was that religion would more and more diminish. Uh, that's a minority view today, you know, in the sociological, uh, uh, the academy, the, of the sociologists, the minority view. And uh, let me give you three names, <clears throat> two of which, Peter Berger, an Australian sociologist, Grace Davey, just recently retired, I think, from the University of Exeter, a uh, sociologist of religion, very prominent here in Britain. What they'll tell you is this, that what modernity does is it does lead to more individualism. Uh, technologically advanced societies are less collectivist. They tend to be more individualistic. People make their own choices. But under modernity, religion doesn't go away. Here's what goes away. Inherited religion tends to go away, but not chosen religion. Inherited religion is religion you're born into, and you're, you're considered a participant or a member of that religion unless you leave, but you're just born into it. It's automatic. That kind of religion tends to go away under, under uh, modern conditions. And uh, chosen religion, where people convert, <laughs> where people listen and they hear it and they choose it and they decide for it and they commit to it. That kind of religion, by the way, in the world is actually growing very, very rapidly. 
Now, for you in Europe, Britain, Europe, you need to keep this in mind. Europe is the one part of the world in which Christianity is largely, has been seen by most people as an inherited religion. So, um, if I'm Norwegian, I'm Lutheran. If I'm Scottish, I'm Presbyterian. If I'm English, I'm C of E. If I'm uh, Polish, I'm Catholic. That's inherited religion. I'm automatically that because, of course, I'm Polish or I'm Italian or I'm Scottish and that sort of thing. It, that kind of religion, that understanding of Christianity, is definitely dying out. And that's the reason why, even in America, um, the number of people who uh, in the past would have said, I'm a Christian because I was born a Methodist or I, was, I came up in the church, Today, people feel like unless I've chosen it, it's not mine. And so they're, they're, they're checking none. They're checking secular, something like that. And what that actually means is that inherited religion, in a way, is going away. And so the numbers look terrible in Europe. Fewer and fewer people you know, say they're Christian. Same thing in America. But actually, chosen religion, religion in which people get converted, is growing. Uh, the reason why the sociologists have gotten rid of this idea that, that uh, religions going away under modernity uh, is, for example, the more uh, technologically advanced China gets, Christianity in China is growing rapidly. Uh, Korea went from 0% Christian to 30% Christian in 100 years. China went from you know, 1%, 0% Christian to about 10% or more, perhaps, it's very hard to know, percent Christian just in the last 20 or 30 years. As you know, Christianity is growing very rapidly in Africa, in Latin America, uh, evangelicalism, uh, Pentecostalism. It's growing tremendously because it's chosen religion. It's religion that you, you have to be converted to be in that kind of religion. It's that understanding of Christianity. Um, and one more name just to keep in mind, then go on to the three things I think Christianity can contribute to British society. But the last preliminary thing to say, you got to read Eric Kaufman. Eric Kaufman is also an English sociologist who wrote a book called Shows the Religious Inherit the Earth. And without dwelling on it, because it's not, uh, well, it's, it's, it's just a simple fact. His main, the answer to the, to the question that that book title poses is yes. Because the less you believe in God, the fewer children you have. The more, the, the, the more religious you are, uh, the more thick the religion is, rather than thin liberal religion, the more thick the religion is, the more children you have. And that's the reason why, for example, the latest uh, indications are today almost 17% of the world's population says they're not religious, they're secular. But uh, 30 years from now, it'll be down to almost 12%. That number is shrinking. You can go look at the Pew Charitable Trust's recent survey of re worldwide religion. You can read Eric Kaufman's book. Uh, that may be good or bad news. It doesn't necessarily, you know, I'm a Christian, so I wish Christianity would grow. Well, there's other religions that are growing too. Uh, the main point, though, is our future is not secular. If you think so, you are living in a bubble. I do know that elite British culture believes that. It's just like, it's just considered common sense. The facts don't back it up. Maybe white people are getting more secular in the world. You could even make a case for that, but they're also shrinking as a percentage of the population. The world is not getting more secular. And over the next few years, uh, that'll get it a little easier to see than it is right now from the vantage point of most elite uh, Anglo, uh, uh, the elite, sophisticated, educated Anglo viewpoint here and in North America doesn't see that, but it's coming. If that's the case and the future is not secular, Okay, then, all right, what could Christianity contribute to British society if it flourished? 
I hear three things. Two of them, I admit, are things that other religions might be able to contribute to, to as well, but the third is not. The third is uniquely Christian. The three things that Christianity, I think, could contribute to British society are, I'll just put it like this and then explain them, there is a, uh, an unreproducible social capital that Christianity will give you. <coughs> Secondly, there is an unreproducible moral capital that Christianity can give. And thirdly, there is a unique, only to Christian, there's a unique spiritual capital it can bring as well. Let me go through those three. First of all, social capital. Some of you may have heard about this. Uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama, uh, Robert Putnam, you know, the Harvard sociologist, his famous book, Bowling Alone. Here's what social capital is. Social capital is, uh, I'm getting this from uh, Putnam, I think. Social capital is, I wrote it down, so I thought I knew it, but nope, gotta look. I thought I knew it well enough. <coughs> Social capital is uh, informal, shared norms and values that promote cooperation and trust between individuals that go well beyond what is required by the law. That is to say, uh, social capital is trust, deep trust. Uh, it, it brings people together, it makes them cooperate, and it goes beyond anything the law could ever require from people. So, for example, there's only three things that can create social capital. Kinship, family, okay. Secondly, shared religious values, or thirdly, some intense shared historical experience. Uh, you know, for about a year after 9-11, everybody who lived in New York City during that experience, there was a shared, there was a social capital, there was a shared, there was actually an increased amount of trust because we'd all been through something. It, it went away, by the way, it really did go away. The gay community, by the way, has it because they have a shared experience. The main point is that social capital creates the bonds you have to have to have a flourishing economy and have democratic institutions, to have limited government because it decreases the transaction costs. Let me give you three studies about this. Uh, there's a guy named J.S. Coleman, who's under, trying to understand social capital, looked into the practices of Orthodox Jewish diamond merchants. They have created the most incredibly efficient market. This is in America. Because, quote, their transaction and monitoring costs are so low, there's less overhead on every deal, and their costs are so low because they trust each other. Because of their shared values, because they trust each other, it's, uh, they are incredibly efficient. Um, there have been two major studies by an anthropologist called Richard Sosis who examined communes. People that come together uh, are trying to live in a very, very uh, interdependent, cooperative uh, situation. He studied not only historic communes in, in the United States, over 200 over the last 100 years that have been started in the United States, but they also uh, studied the kibbutzim, you know, the kibbutzes in, uh, uh, in Israel, and discovered that the secular ones were about, uh, well, put, put it this way, communities based on religion were something like 10 times more likely to stay together than the secular ones. And uh, Jonathan Haidt, I'll get back to him in a minute, Jonathan Haidt, a, a secular uh, psychology, social psychologist at NYU, wrote a very important book called The Righteous Mind, says uh, essentially that what religion does is it creates that kind of trust it brings people together. 
It lowers the transaction costs. And he and Robert Putnam and all the others will tell you this. There's no way the government or public policy can produce that kind of trust. The kind of trust you need for limited government in the past has actually been supplied by common beliefs, common moral values, common, common religious beliefs that brought a country together. And now that those things are going away, you, 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 look, you, you rely on public policy, you, you, you rely on government regulation, and all the sociologists will say, you, there's no way you can replace that. It would be impossible to replace that. And you say, well, yeah, all right, religion, right? Religion, uh, but not, not the old religion. David Brooks recently wrote a, a New York Times essay in which it called Creed or Chaos, by the way, which is a Dorothy Sayers uh, title that he used uh, of an old uh, a book of hers some years ago. And here's what he said. He says, one of the things the sociologists will tell you is that the thicker, the, uh, the more uh, definite, the doctrinal beliefs of a religion the stronger the social capital. The stronger the social capital. Uh, Nicholas Kristof is another New York Times uh, op-ed writer. He writes for the New York Times uh, uh, editorial page all the time. Recently wrote a, uh, a fascinating article that got a lot of heat called A Little Respect for Dr. Foster. And what Nick Kristof's been doing for the years, he's a, uh, he's a wonderful guy and he has spent uh, many, many years traveling around the world to find places where people are helping the poor, people are helping the sick, people are helping the oppressed, and people are helping the marginalized. Especially, he's looking for places where it, it's very risky to go there. Your life is at risk, either because of disease, your life is at risk because of the, uh, because of the political uh, instability. And he writes this article, even though he himself is actually very critical, especially of, of conservative Christians. Uh, a little respect for Dr. Foster, he was talking about a particular guy named Dr. Foster who uh, works with, uh, I think it was with Ebola patients in, uh, in uh, Africa. But basically he says, this guy tells me something. He says, even though I hate to say it, and I'm not saying there aren't other kind of people out here, but he says, highly religious people, especially, he said, uh, evangelical and Pentecostal, high relig highly religious people are uh, disproportionately represented in the people that he has found over the years that are out there on the lines. And he says, it's str strong religion makes you heroic. And it's very hard to find some other reason to be that heroic. Why? Why risk everything? Why go do everything? Now, he says, and rightly I'll say, you do not have to be religious to be able to do that. There's plenty of people who are not religious who are able to do that. But it's fair to say, the sociologists say, Christoph said, across people across the population. What set of beliefs are going to produce that more often? The answer is, this is what David uh, Brooks said, vague, uplifting, non-doctrinal religiosity doesn't last. The religions that grow, sucker, and motivate rigorous, arduous, uh, heroic acts of service are usually theologically uh, very, very detailed and specific and definite in their convictions about what is true and what is false. Okay, social capital. Number two, religion creates that. I'll show you why Christianity creates that kind of unique social capital, but Christianity, uh, religions do that. Government can't do that. Government ought to be really happy to see lots and lots of uh, uh, moral communities of various religions springing up in their place because they know that those religions, those religious communities are producing social capital, not just for themselves, 
like Dr. Foster, but for all the people around them. Number two, moral capital. What do I mean by moral capital? Uh, back to Richard, uh, back to Jonathan Haidt in his uh, book, The Righteous Mind. He and another guy uh, that I want to tell you about is Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher, uh, who wrote a book called A Secular Age. Now those two men say this. Secular people, in a secular society, there's still moral commitments. In religious society, we had moral commitments that grew out of our religious uh, uh, beliefs. Because God made us in his image, Christian said, therefore, there's such a thing as human rights. Individuals are sacrosanct. Uh, you, there's, every human being is infinitely precious in God's sight, has the mark of God that can't be trampled on. So there's a, there's a case for human dignity. There's a case for human rights. Well, somebody says, well, I'm secular. I don't believe in God at all, but I believe in human rights too. Yes, you can. Absolutely you can. Here's the question. Charles Taylor says that in a secular society, though we still have a lot of these beliefs that are kind of held over from our Christian past, because that's where those ideas came from. Friedrich Nietzsche will tell you that. The idea of caring for the poor, the idea of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, everyone, every human being having an absolute right to, to uh, good treatment. Uh, Nietzsche would say that if you believe that you should forgive your enemies, if you believe in helping the poor, if you believe in the dignity of every human being, if you believe in universal human rights, he says, you're a Christian, whether you will admit it or not. Because those ideas did not come out of the other worldviews. It didn't come out of the East. It didn't come out of uh, uh, Northern European paganism. It came out of the Bible. It came out of Christianity. It came out of Judaism. And he says, therefore, if you still hold those things, whether you know it or not, you're being a Christian. <clears throat> and if you don't believe in the universe that Christians believed it, you've got no basis for what you're saying. Now the average person I know in New York City, which isn't that different than, than people in London, the average person who's not particularly religious says, oh, for goodness sakes, don't give me all that. You know, I'm still a moral person. I've, I've got moral commitments. But here's what Taylor, Charles Taylor says, yes, we still have moral commitments, but right now our secular society is incredibly, in our, he calls it our incredible moral inarticulacy. That is, we can tell people this is what's right, you, this, this is how you ought to live but we have no way of telling them why. No way of telling them why at all. We say, well, we're not religious, but here's our moral commitments. And yet, all moral commitments, I'm gonna tell you right now, are based on some kind of belief, not science, but some kind of belief about human nature, what human beings are for, about how the relationship of the individual to community. It's, and those things aren't scientific, uh, empirical findings. All moral commitments are based on kind of some kind of religious beliefs, whether you will admit it or not. Let me give you an example. Imagine a British politician speaking, and then time for questions, and a Nietzschean interlocutor gets up and starts to ask a few questions. Let's just say that the British politician said that the quality of a society is always seen in how it treats its weakest members. Hmm? The quality of a society is seen in how it treats its weakest members. If it treats its weakest members, it's a great society. If it treats its weakest members with love and care and concern, <clears throat> Nietzsche and the interlocutor gets up and says, I disagree. I believe that all safety nets for the poor should be removed so that only the fittest survive. After all, that's the way it is in nature. That fits the world and life as we know it. The politician retorts, oh, but as human beings, the poor deserve 
this. Every human being deserves the measures that will care for them. And the Nietzschean interlocutor says, <clears throat> excuse me, but bioethicists agree that it's impossible to even define what a human being is. Some people say the unborn fetus is a human being. Some people say he's not. Some people, like Peter Singer at Princeton, says, well, Alzheimer's patients, since they don't have free will, they're not really human beings. There's no way to define a human being. So don't tell me that these people are human beings and therefore we have no way of defining human being. Well, the politician, the human being is therefore a useless category. The human politician responds that the poor, the poor must not be treated as things or objects to be used instrumentally, but as valuable persons as ends in themselves. Obviously, the politician, you know, got Immanuel Kant in philosophy 101, and he says, he says, well, the poor must not be treated as things or objects to be used instrumentally, but they're valuable. And then Nietzschean interlocutor says, there are no, there is no possibility of treating all living organisms as ends rather than means and that some will always have to die that others may live. That's just the way it is. Now the politician gets really angry. He says, look, it's not practical to be indifferent to the poor because they will have more social problems and society will work better if we care for them. The Nietzschean says, for every pragmatic argument you can marshal for caring for the poor, there will be other pragmatic arguments in the other direction, such as why letting some of the poor die or migrate to other countries would be seen more, as more efficient. Finally, the politician, who's quite angry, says, it is just unethical to let the poor starve. And the Nietzschean interlocutor says, who's to say what is ethical? You? Why would your moral feelings trump mine or others? Finally, the politician says, I just won't let you do it. <laughs> and the point is, the politician is trying to, universe, trying to find universally agreeable, acceptable, rationally deduced principles that are not based on religious beliefs that everyone can believe and he's failed miserably because there aren't any. <laughs> there aren't any. See, if you don't believe there's a God, if you, don't, if you believe we're here, you know, just as a product of, uh, of impersonal forces that brought us here, if you don't believe there's a God and you believe that basically there's no set of moral absolutes out there that I have to align myself with because essentially all morality is person-specific and culturally constructed. And uh, there's no way that uh, everybody has to decide right or wrong for me. You can have very strong moral feelings, but you will have no ability to call for moral obligation. See, in other words, without God, you can uh, explain moral feelings. They may have been the product of evolution. They may be your personal choice. They may be your culture. I don't know. But without God, there's no such thing as moral obligation, because moral obligation is saying, my feelings trump your feelings. That is to say, you must stop doing this whether you feel it's wrong or not. Well, the person says, well, the Nietzschean person will say, why should your feelings be more important than my feelings? And this is, this is the moral inarticulacy we have right now in our secular society. We're saying, well, here are our values. We have no way of, of training people up in them. We have no way of, of in, in, inculcating them to children because if they say, why? Why should I sacrifice for the poor? Why should I sacrifice my freedom for this or that? And you, you just say, because it works better. That's a pragmatic argument. But there's always pragmatic arguments against whatever you're saying. If you say, because it's wrong, then you've got no basis for it. If there's a God, you've got a basis. And, and here's something that Jonathan Haidt in his book, The uh, Righteous uh, Mind, says, which is pretty controversial, but he says he can prove it. He says, studies have shown that if you even, if you talk to people, uh, he, studies have shown that if you get God, that even the word God and the concept of God 
onto a test, people are less likely to cheat. And this is what he says. <laughs> you even get it on. And you know, he actually, at a certain point, he, he goes, you know, he knows that this is not what people want to hear, but he says this quote. He says, you don't need a social scientist to tell you that people behave less ethically when they think nobody can see them. People cheat less on a test when the concept of God is even activated in memory merely by asking people to unscramble sentences that include words related to God. Okay, now lastly, somebody says, yeah, but pretty much what you've been saying would fit for other religions too. Yes, but here's a unique spiritual capital that Christianity brings. Uh, and to get it across, I need to talk to you about something that happened in uh, uh, my neck of the woods, eastern Pennsylvania in, 19, in 2005. In 2005, there was a uh, terrible tragedy, I'm sure it was reported over here, and that is a gunman uh, took over an Amish schoolhouse uh, in Lancaster County, and he shot dead um, a number of girls. Uh, they were all ages, I think, 17, seven to, yeah, no, ages seven to 13, shot dead five little girls, uh, Amish girls, and then killed himself. And it got an awful lot of publicity and a lot of, because right after the, uh, this terrible tragedy, the Amish uh, came around the widow of the, the gunman, the shooter, came around the parents of the shooter who lived in the community and said, we forgive you, and we love you, and your future is going to be very hard, and we want to walk with you through that. And there was lots and lots of discussion about the, their ability to forgive. Lots of discussion about it. And the, um, uh, many people said, it's wrong. They shouldn't forgive. That's terrible. What that man did should never be forgiven. Others said, well, that's Americans at its best. Uh, America at its best. But what happened, interestingly, after that was a uh, three sociologists, you know, I, I guess I'm into that right now. Pardon me? That's my wife and she comes into this illustration. Three, uh, three uh, sociologists got together with the next couple of years and wrote a book called Amish Grace. And Amish Grace was looking at this incident and asking the question, is it really true that, others, that other parts of American society could probably produce this kind of forgiveness? Uh, terrible, horrible, horrible uh, action of cruelty. And for the entire community to uh, rise up and, just, and, and show forgiveness and reconciliation. In fact, you know, there was a TV film made not Americans do this all the time. We had a TV film made not long afterwards that sort of dramatized it. What was intriguing was that there was a there was a, a fictional figure put in the in the uh, story by the TV producers. Uh, it was they created a fictional character and it was Ida Graber, and she was an Amish mother of one of the murdered children. And in the movie, she's so filled with doubts and anger at God and unable to forgive the gunman that she almost leaves her faith. And the scholars who wrote the book bring that up because they said it was very clear, because they were all involved with this, that there was nobody like that. There were no Amish uh, parents who, they were all grieved, yes, but the idea that I can't believe in God or I'm not going to be able to forgive. There was uh, the, the, TV produ the TV producers of the, the, uh, the movie felt like nobody out there in American society could really relate to what actually happened inside the Amish community. So they had, 
create an Amish woman who was more like what the average American would do, uh, would be like. And here's what the uh, sociologist said. The reason why you're not likely again to see outside of a very thick, strong religious community and a Christian community, that kind of forgiveness and reconciliation is for three reasons. Number one, it said, first of all, you have to remember that uh, maybe secular people are morally inarticulate, but religious people in general tend to be self-righteous. We all know that religion can create tribalism. Religion can create condescension. Religion can create uh, a desire only to help the people inside who are the true believers and not the people outside. Well, how do you overcome that? Christianity is different than the other religions in this. At the heart of Christianity is a man dying for his enemies. So uh, here's how my wife gets into this story, is right after 9-11, for a week after 9-11, over and over again, I kept reading in the newspaper, uh, this, is what hap this is what religion does. Religious people feel like they've got the truth. Religious people feel like they're right. Religious people feel like they've got the, uh, uh, they're self-righteous. And therefore they feel like they can kill, they can do whatever they want because they've got God on their sides. Uh, and this is what happens with fundamentalist religion. And my wife looked up, because I was telling her about another story I read. And Kathy, my wife, looked up and said, that's not true. That's not true that fundamentalism always produces violence. It depends on what your fundamental is. Have you ever seen an Amish terrorist? And here's what the fundamental of Christianity is. The Amish take it very seriously. A man dying for his enemies. A man saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A man forgiving his tormentors and killers. Now look, if you, what Christians are supposed to do, if you teach that, if you sing that, if you meditate on that, if you rehearse that, if you celebrate that, if that's the very heart of your understanding of the universe, which is what Christians, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sins, caring for me even when I didn't care for him. That's got to affect the way in which you handle people who wrong you. It has to. It must. It does. And therefore, Christianity is different in this sense. Um, we need a moral absolute, do we not? I've been trying to show you that there's not enough, so the social capital and the moral capital is being eaten away in a society in which there's no moral absolutes. But religion that just has moral absolutes, that can create self-righteousness, that can create uh, violence. But what if the moral absolute is Jesus Christ dying on the cross, a man dying for his enemies? A man dying so that you could be saved by grace, not because you're better than other people, but only because of God's grace to you. See, that is a, how do I put it, a non-oppressive moral absolute. It's the only moral absolute I know that won't turn you into an oppressor if you believe it with all your heart. And therefore, I just you know, finish like this. The unique spiritual capital that Christianity gives is Christianity, unlike other religions, believes you're, you believe you're saved by grace. Other religions have a founder who says, I'm a prophet, come to show you how to find God. Jesus Christ is the only founder of religion that says, no, I'm God, I'm come to find you. And I have come not to tell you what you have to do if you're gonna be good enough to get to heaven, I've come to fulfill all the requirements. I'm going to live the life you should have lived, die the death you should have died in my place, so that if you say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus Christ has done, you're accepted now. And you get an identity that's based on grace. And that doesn't turn you into an oppressor. 
On the other hand, it gives you that moral fiber. It gives you that basis for social capital. It gives you that base for all of that. By the way, some of you know about the Charleston uh, shootings in an African-American church. This was in your Times today. I read it on the train. The only, <laughs> there it goes again. <laughs> the, 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 remaining, the remaining pastor of that church, that African-American church, uh, his name was uh, Reverend Norville Goff. It says here, um, when Mr. Roof, that's the killer, appeared in court via video link, all the relatives, every, every single relative of all the, the victims declared they forgave him. Mr. Goff said reporters had asked him why the nine families all spoke of forgiveness and didn't have malice. That was a reporter's question. Why the nine families all spoke of forgiveness and didn't have malice. And this African-American pastor said this. It has to do with their faith. And then he says, quote, on this Father's Day, we had Father's Day in America, on this Father's Day, you ought to know the nine families' daddy in heaven. If you knew the nine families' daddy in heaven, you would know how the children, his children are behaving. So um, there's a kind of unique spiritual capital that Christianity brings that sweetens the moral capital and the social capital in a way I think that probably other religions can't. But you know, you can ask me about that because I'm done. And I'm going to sit over here and somebody's going to... I'm going to